0: I am very delighted to uh, welcome all of you to this town hall meeting on the uh, immigration ban by the new um, US Regime uh, Administration. We are uh, very happy that uh, so many of you have uh, come out on such short notice. We apologize, but this was something that uh, we uh, uh, put together rather quickly as a function of the uh, very rapid events and even uh, more rapid executive orders. Uh, we are very happy to have with us uh, six uh, distinguished uh, faculty members and uh, conscientious people who are going to discuss this topic uh, one at a time. We'll probably uh, go with the order that is um, on the flyer. Just a couple of words before we start about uh, the institution that has set this up. It's the Ali Voral Akh Center for Global Islamic Studies and co-sponsored by Middle East and Islamic Studies Program. My name is Bassam Haddad. I direct the Middle East and Islamic Studies Program, and I will be your moderator. Uh, thank you all for coming. I welcome others. Um, please stay after the uh, event for just a few minutes. We have some immigration officials who are going to come and check some papers. Um, I will give or seat the floor to Noura, I will probably say a few words towards the end based on how much time we still have. So I will yield my time.
1: Well, let me start by saying that I know we're all in a little bit of shock that Trump, or number 45, as some have called him, have uh, has issued uh, 18 executive actions, which seems a bit exorbitant, but in fact, during his first uh, two weeks in office, President Obama actually issued 19 executive actions. So this kind of behavior isn't what is abnormal. It's the scope of them, it's the hasty nature with which they're being presented without interagency vetting um, that actually makes them so controversial. So this particular executive order on limiting the number, first of all, on, on uh, the ban, so to speak, on seven uh, Muslim-majority countries as, uh, for 90 days, as well as a complete ban on the acceptance of refugees from Syria, was not vetted by the, de- uh, the Department of Homeland Security. And so it hasn't been vetted by other people um, within Trump's own staff. And so that is going to subject it. One, it's subject people to question, um, such as Professor Jack Goldsmith, who was part of the uh, uh, George W. Bush administration, to say that it was created so hastily as to suggest that perhaps they do want this to be overturned so that they can um, unroll and, and usher something that's much more harsh. Um, that we find acceptable. How is that possible? It's very possible. What's at issue right now? The order has been temporarily restrained. That does it by a uh, federal judge, district court judge, which is the first court of jurisdiction. (laughs) My students are laughing. We keep going over this. First court of jurisdiction in the federal level. And so that means that what it goes to next, if it's appealed, is the Ninth Circuit, which the the argument was held two days ago. And then if the government wants to appeal, it'll go to the Supreme Court. So the district judge has said that this is overly broad, that the administration has not demonstrated a, a security threat, a compelling government interest, when asking the government attorney, uh, whether or not how many terrorist threats have actually been identified from any of the seven countries, the attorney responded, I don't know, which indicates the hasty nature with which it's been put together. The judge responded, zero. Right. So that we the, 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 the issue is that this is legal. The executive branch does have this plenary authority to actually restrict uh, who who comes and goes into the country. But the fact in this case is that you, you cannot demonstrate the, um, you might not be able to demonstrate the compelling interest. The counter argument is that, well, in fact, um, this isn't a Muslim ban because this only bans 15% of a global Muslim population so that you can't argue with some Muslim ban, and that the m- largest uh, Muslim country, Indonesia, is not on the list. So this isn't targeting Muslims, this is actually targeting, for example, where ISIS may be operating, where we do have a national security threat, and so there the, gov- uh, the, the, the government um, actually has an argument in response. Can I just close? Yes. Okay. Um, so the, the takeaway here is that as it is drafted now, this looks like it's not going to withstand strict scrutiny, which is a particular approach uh, to understanding the constitutionality of it. And, I, and we can discuss strict scrutiny later. But this can be amended so that it would uh, that it would uh, overcome that kind of constitutional law scrutiny. And secondly, what we're seeing now, which is really interesting, is just the broad coalitions that are being um, developed in response, including 100 tech companies. That have filed an amicus curiae to support the, um, to support opposition to the ban, as well as 16 attorney generals of different states. And so the thing to be mindful of is that when states are now arguing that this is harming them, and they're the ones suing, they're not suing on behalf of Muslims, they're suing on behalf of state interests, that um, what's also happening now is the recreation of an argument that other states have used to, to forward much more conservative interests like when Texas uh, asserted standing to oppose uh, DACA under the Obama administration. And so just know that however we're using the law, it's going to be used uh, in in all ways and will not come down clear cut on the side that we necessarily want to advocate.
0: Thank you, Nora. Professor Mandeville.
2: Great, thank you very much, and and I'd add my thanks to all of you for for joining us for this uh, discussion. Um, I I just spent the last two years working at the State Department as as part of the U.S. government strategy to counter the th- challenge posed by the, uh, the 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 group known as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, and so I actually want to talk about these executive orders as a piece of national security policy rather than getting into I think. The very important legal dimensions that, that my colleague professor Arakat has has um, t- touched on um, I, 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 I think it 's impossible to separate the narrow technical legal language that indeed d- does not discriminate uh, on entry into the U- United States in terms of the seven countries. Uh, l- listed uh, on the basis of religious affiliation. Right? It, all citizens of those countries, in theory, are um, uh, affected by, by this. Now, there are provisions in the executive order that do quite explicitly discriminate based on religious affiliation later in the executive order. And this is the section of it that refers to what's going to happen after 120 days once the refugee resettlement program is opened up again which directs the relevant federal agencies to privilege entering into the United States refugees who have been subject to religious persecution when and where they are religious minorities in the countries from which they are coming. Um, and, and the politics of this is fairly transparent and that it's very clear that this is an effort to, uh, to, to provide for privileged access to the United States uh, for, for Christian refugees coming from the Middle East. Although, in, in theory, um, uh, it would be possible for a persecuted Muslim minority uh, to enter into to the United States here. What I think is deeply problematic about this passage in particular from a sort of um, bureaucratic point of view is that it means that the Department of Homeland Security is going to have to come up with standards and protocols to figure out who is a Christian or what, what, what it means to claim a particular religious identity. Just pause and think about that for a moment. The US government is going to be placed in the position of deciding whether or not someone is a true member of a particular religious group. This is territory we've never been in. Having the United States be, to some extent, a theological arbiter, Arguably, this is itself unconstitutional, based on the establishment cause of the First Amendment, which forbids the federal government from establishing a religion, and in a broader interpretation of the establishment cause, uh, undertaking any action which appears to establish any m- m- matter of uh, r- religion. It forces the US government to be neutral with respect to matters of religion. That isn't possible under this executive order. So that's one particular domain in which one can begin to talk about the constitutionality of it. But let's talk about it as a piece of national security policy. It's the position of the Trump administration that, that this is an important action to take due to um, uh, the, the, the risks of um, uh, foreign terrorists entering U.S. soil. And as we know, the, the, the campaign trail talk of a Muslim ban arose in the context of events such as the San Bernardino shootings, the Orlando nightclub uh, uh, attack... And what, of course, has struck many observers of national security affairs is, is that neither of those attacks, nor the Boston m- m- bombings, even if you go back to the events of 9-11, the perpetrators of, who, of which were citizens um, of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Lebanon, the UAE, none of the people who have carried out these attacks that are supposedly the context in which this executive order is, is issued would actually be affected by this uh, executive order. And so simply on the grounds of this being an effective national security policy that is grounded in the actual provenance of a particular risk to U.S. national security, I think we're on very questionable ground here. The administration has gone out of its way to point out that they didn't come up with these seven countries. This is not the Trump administration um, discriminating itself against these seven countries, but that these seven countries are the basis of previous executive action undertaken by the Obama administration. This is absolutely true. But the national security logic underpinning those two executive actions were fundamentally different. The Obama administration action does not target the citizens of those seven countries. The the Obama uh, action, targets citizens of countries that participate in the Visa Waiver Program, a program that allows um, countries of 30, nationals of 38 uh, countries, mainly very close US partners and allies in Europe, places like Japan, Australia, New Zealand, to come to the United States without having to go through the usual process to interview and get a, a visa. That Obama administration executive action took place in the context of the height of the threat posed from the problem generally termed in national security circles as foreign terrorist fighters. The fact that you had many citizens of European countries volunteering to fight in Syria and then in some cases coming back to Europe, traveling back to Europe very easily with their Belgian or German or French passports and then potentially being involved in some of the attacks that did occur in Europe. The Obama administration looked at this situation and said, hang on a second, there's a potential loophole here that we need to close because it means that it would be very easy for those people to potentially come to the the United States without having to get a visa first. So, what we should do is not ban people from uh, coming into the United States from those seven countries, not ban visa waiver participating nationals, simply making sure that that citizens of visa waiver countries receive the already very high levels of scrutiny associated with this. And this, I think, is, and here is where it gets a little bit personal for me, as someone who worked in the, the previous administration and was to some extent involved in these affairs, the underlying claim on the Trump administration seems to be that existing vetting procedures are somehow loose. And slack, and that it 's easy to get into this country. I, I assure you that it is not anyone trying to come to the United States from Syria or Iraq or some, some Somalia as any of one who has done so any of those countries would tell you recently goes through an incredibly arduous. And, 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 um, and long and detailed vetting process. So this is simply an executive order aiming at a problem that isn't there and is, I think, in my personal estimation, best understood first and foremost as a piece of political theater more than anything else. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Mandeville.
0: Professor. Um, thank it. you so much.
3: Um, thank you so much for this, and thank you. It's an honor to be on this panel uh, with Established Scholars. So I will just take a few minutes um, to talk about American Muslims. I mean, one of the, the populations that these executive orders target is American Muslims. I know there are other communities, uh, the Hispanic communities, undocumented immigrants, and maybe other sexual, ethnic um, identities. But let's talk about American Muslims. And I want to do just, you know, two things here. One is for those of you who may not be familiar with the American Muslim community, just provide an overall broad overview. Uh, Several things to say. This is a very diverse community in regards to its ethnic racial makeup, in regards to Uh, religious sensibilities. Uh, So one thing that this executive order, that this post 9-11 trend of talking about Muslims makes is actually we are lumping together a very diverse community um, into one identity. Uh, Second thing is, you know, how many of American Muslims perhaps are going to be affected by these executive orders? About 80% of the broader more or less 3 million or so American Muslims are citizens of the United States. Um, so one argument goes that oh okay, so a broad majority is, is citizens, so maybe they are not really they don't have too much to fear about. Uh, but actually, I'll talk in the second part, which is that you know f- citizens are really worried that their rights are going to be infringed upon as much as those who hold either green cards or just here on visas. Um, just to remind you, perhaps, you know, as a historical sort of an anecdote, that about, I think, 60% of Japanese Americans who were interned uh, after Pearl Harbor, Harbor were citizens of the United States. So American Muslims are increasingly looking to, to historical contexts. Uh, after giving this, this broad overview of the community, and we can talk about that, uh, but this is not a presentation, and I guess, you know, we are talking more particularly about the executive order there is a post 9/11 trend of you know securitization of uh, muslim identity in the united states we can include into this arab identity as well right christian arabs were a majority of the arabs uh, in the united states are equally securitized in a post 9/11 context so there is this post 9/11 context of securitization and post 9/11 uh, context of civil rights uh, violations that, as much as you know, many Muslims uh, are subject to. American Muslims are particularly have been experiencing these uh, civil liberty violations uh, through different you know kinds of registries and as such. And obviously, non-citizens are more at risk. And you know, we have seen this in different you know ways uh, that have continued not only through you know the immediate aftermath of 9/11 and the Bush administration, but also through the Obama administration as well. Uh, We can talk about N.C.E.R.S., which was just, you know, finally right before Obama stepped down, uh, did one good gesture of at least uh, nullifying that that framework uh, that could be used uh, by the new administration. And then before the executive order, on the one hand, you know, we are talking about legality, establishment free exercise clauses, but at the same time, one of the contexts and one of the concerns that American Muslims have is uh, about other actions that may follow, right? With Jeff Sessions in the uh, in the AG seat, uh, and with a lot of the government watchdogs that played a critical role uh, throughout the last you know, 10 or 12, um, eight years, I'm sorry, uh, to actually step in when in different states or in different cities Muslims' rights were uh, violated are now not going to be as active. And we have seen this not only with Muslims, but also you know, with undocumented immigrants. I think in Phoenix, uh, the first deportation of, uh, of, a, uh, of an undocumented immigrant who has been you know, coming to the ICE offices uh, per regulations is taking place any day now. Uh, so these are some of the contexts that the community, the American Muslim community, broadly um, has been discussing. Uh, another one uh, trend that we should perhaps you know, keep in mind is you know, how will this impact uh, the political sensibilities and social sensibilities of the American Muslim community? Once again, you have economic intergenerational differences when we talk about this, but more or less we can say that at a broader level, uh, especially the immigrant uh, portions of American Muslim community, maybe not so much. So the indigenous American Muslims who have been here for uh, more generations have had actually an affinity for the Republican Party, for you know social conservatism, for their economic uh, policies. This has changed after 9/11. Uh, in the primaries, we have seen that you know many Muslims, especially the younger generation has developed an affinity for, um, uh, for Bernie Sanders. And now uh, we've seen that you know, a lot of these people are also building closer alliances with other communities of minority communities, that this be ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, and as such. So I think we'll continue this. Uh, we'll see that this will continue in the, in the coming uh, months. But at the same time, One of the critical points that I would like to address is there is still a broader question of how to live in diversity, in a diverse society. And, you know, what should our identities be shaped with? As much as we see that American Muslims come together with, you know, more or less, you know, if you want to call that liberal segments of the society, I think there is real need for conversation within these communities as well. They may be standing together against Trump administration, but they also have a lot to talk about uh, if we want to avoid a situation whereby we see, for example, in Europe, in different contexts in Europe, whereas you know some of the more to-the-left, liberal, progressive communities are actually among those who hold uh, significant biases about Islam as a faith and about Muslim communities. Otherwise one of the things that we'll see is a stigmatization of those who are immigrants and categorizations of good Muslim versus bad Muslim take hold. Uh, I think, you know, one of the the important points, and perhaps Professor Mandeville can provide some more background on this, is going forward, if the Trump administration declares Muslim Brotherhood as a foreign terrorist organization, we'll see that a lot of American Muslim organizations will be in trouble Those citizens who have donated to these organizations, these umbrella organizations, uh, which are quite diverse, will uh, come to be criminalized. And, you know, despite calls to avoid this step, no one can really figure out whether the administration will actually do that or not, given Stephen Bannon has a seat in, in the National Security Council, and there are significant... Uh, anti-Muslim activists that are in critical positions in the government. With this, perhaps another point that is important is that after 9-11, another one of the realities is there is a structural anti-Muslim, anti-Arab campaign uh, which is well-funded, which uh, really employs uh, quite a few number of uh, people and some of the significant names from within these uh, groups are now in uh, the administration, which is a concern for American Muslim, uh, Muslims, broadly regardless of their religious um, or religiosity levels or regardless of their political um, identity. Uh, let me stop there, and Thank you. Uh, my, and uh,
0: Maria, would you like to say a few words? We'd love to hear from you. I know that uh, you were trying to give us the time, but
4: So I I really, again, thank you, and more people have come, which is great, and hopefully a great discussion or good discussion will ensue. And um, I I have to confess, there's uh, not much more I can add to what my colleagues have laid out in the way of sort of aspects of this problem or executive order or crisis that we're facing, and also uh, some of the things that they have asked all of us to consider in terms of impacts of these, uh, of this particular executive order on the American Muslim community, on people outside the region, and, uh, and you know, the, the sort of the broader kind of global stage. Um, so I was listening to uh, my colleague, Professor Yilmaz talk about the sort of historical background and you know the, the way in which this executive order, in a way, has not come out of nowhere, right? There is a, a deep and very profound um, sort of longstanding set of maneuvers, rhetorical strategies, and policies that reflect a kind of ongoing and deeply-rooted antipathy toward uh, things Muslim or things Islamic. Um, But I also wanted to raise the issue of how this kind of executive order uh, reflects, as you were saying, a securitization of sort of Muslim identity, how it reflects it in terms of the way in which Some states have been targeted and others have not. So it would seem from the list of the states that have been told you cannot send your people here, they are banned, states like Yemen and Syria and Libya, there's also this sort of added dimension of how the national security argument or the logic of security, national security has sort of led to the identification of some parts of the region, not only as parts of the region that are bad Muslims or that are Muslim and therefore bad, but also because they are failed states or rogue states, as in the case of Iran, they are particularly liable to the kind of threat Uh, that they're supposed to be sending our way, or they're particularly, you know, prone to being threatening to us. So the securitization of Islam, uh, or Muslim identity, as you put it, uh, Ahmed, is something that I think also kind of has this additional layer of how sort of international relations and political relations uh, between the United States and other countries are... um, being determined by this kind of mindset and leading to bans of certain people from certain countries and not others. And I think this also has to do a little bit with, as you were saying, the issue of banning certain regiments of the Iranian military and the Muslim Brotherhood, the Revolutionary Guard and the Muslim Brotherhood, which has come up today. So it's securitization and politicization.